Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the impact of Russia's strikes on energy and civilian infrastructure, preview the American midterm elections a week before the US goes to the polls, and reflect further on the daring attack on the Russian Black Sea fleet in Sevastopol. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Ukraine can win. Ukraine must win, and Ukraine will win. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 1st of November, day 251. And today... Live from Kriviru in the centre of Ukraine, I'm joined by Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes. From Washington, our Washington editor, Rosina Sabor, and former commander of UK and NATO CBRN forces, Hamish de Breton-Gordon. Just a note from me, Joe's connection from Kriviru, the city in the centre of Ukraine where he's reporting from at the moment, is a little spotty. His audio quality isn't always perfect. Thank you for your understanding. Joe, can I come to you first? You're on the ground in Ukraine. Where are you and what have you been doing? Hi, folks. Um, I'm currently in Krivi Ri, the hometown of Vladimir Zelensky. Um, but it's a really interesting place, despite being kind of the birthplace of the Ukrainian president. It's famed for its steel and iron ore mining industries. It's one of those towns um, in central Ukraine, kind of towards the southern front line, which has a real sort of Soviet feel to it. Um, no, not a lot of people speak English here. Um, Everyone has this, everywhere you kind of look has a sort of orange tinge to it because of the dust clouds that blow from the mines. And and legend has it, like locals will tell you, that some of the steel used to produce the Eiffel Tower was actually mined and produced in Kriviri. Um, and so we, we, we travelled here for from Kiev uh, for a number of reasons, not only because it's kind of, it's the main sort of city at the rear of the Kherson counteroffensive, but it, it also has its own fascinating story. So m- many reporters will pass through using it as a staging post to move further to the south. But the way that the city defended itself without having an army at the beginning of the war is just intriguing. I won't give too much away because um, I'm working on a dispatch for tomorrow's newspaper um, about the story of how one former politician who was living in Kriviri um, in the hours of February 24th, um, kind of the early hours, was able to formulate a plan to defend the city in the time it took him to smoke a single cigarette. And he basically used the knowledge of how the Soviet Union invaded the Czechoslovakia in 1968 because his uncle, a, um, a Soviet Union Air Force pilot, at the time had taken part in that. And he was able to kind of use his knowledge to 
basically defend from a huge Russian kind of onslaught. Um, there was a tank convoy of 50 tanks kind of went went towards the city, but eventually they had to abandon kind of attempts to capture it because of what, what he did. So I won't, I won't give away too many details because that's something you can read about this evening online or, or tomorrow's paper. Um, and then what else have we been doing while I'm here? Um, so we've actually moved away from Kiev about a week ago now, and we had the incident yesterday where it was once again the capital city was kind of left without power and water after the Russians had targeted like kind of civilian energy infrastructure in the area. Um, Klitschko, the mayor Vitaly, former former kind of world heavyweight champion boxer, blood brother of Vladimir, who you also know, um, kind of made clear that around eighty percent of the town or the city, sorry, it's offensive to call such a such a big city of, as Kiev a, a town um, was left without water and um, so myself uh, Verity Bowman and Sergio Olmos who you both heard of on the podcast before um, we wrote about the impact that this actually had on the water shortages had on the town we told the story about how four hospitals in Kiev had to abandon the surgeries because doctors didn't have sufficient water to sterilise their equipment dialysis machines treating uh kidney patients kind of ground to a halt because they didn't have enough water to run and while hospitals all across ukraine i visited visited a number of them now kind of working on another wider piece which we can discuss uh, another week about ukraine's healthcare system have really got to grips with the fact that they might be without energy without power uh, kind of through the winter months they bought in big generators um like running on diesel to make sure all the intensive care units kind of remain kind of running and stuff like that while there's these rolling blackouts across the country as as a result of kind of energy infrastructure being hit by the Russians. But one thing they didn't bank on is water supplies uh, being knocked out. And it's it's kind of one, it's a new challenge that while the Russians hadn't specifically targeted kind of Ukraine and Kiev's water supply, they knocked out the power to 27 pumping stations, which which supply the majority of the city. So this is a new kind of challenge that Ukrainians have got to get to grips of. But I think the real kind of key element of the of the story and the dispatch that we wrote up together was the fact that no matter how much the Russians throw at them and really, and it's now to the point where most people you speak to will say this is not kind of a military or military conflict. This is now a military targeting purely civilian infrastructure and, and civilian kind of populations and they just won't they won't let it, it get them down and it's, it's it's quite remarkable i know last time i appeared i spoke about um kind of people not ignoring the air raid sirens but they, they, they are just determined um the people of kiev and and in Krivi as well and other places i've been to in ukraine to just really get on with their lives and not let kind of the russians get them down because they know that the Russians are trying to kind of drive them into submission with these kind of underhand tactics targeting civilians, but they just won't, they won't let themselves be defeated. Um, and then a few other things we've been working on. We, um, while we were in the Krivi area, we visited a very kind of top secret factory facility where engineers were converting kind of pickup trucks like Nissan pickup trucks, uh, Mitsubishi pickup trucks, and they were attaching grad rocket launching systems onto the rears of them and basically turning these pickup trucks into mobile kind of artillery units that have been kind of ever present on the front line in in Herson, uh ever since the summer when we 
first started catching images of those. And we got to look behind the scenes and it's the pieces online if, if anyone wants to read further. But we, we kind of saw the process of how these machines are converted from regular civilian pickup trucks to these fighting machines um, that can kind of fire over distances of 10 to 20 kilometers. And actually one of the soldiers, um, Abel, his name was, that I spoke to at the facility, he was coming to kind of inspect and check when the next the next pickup truck would be ready to send to the front line. And he, he, he is previously, he's been the driver in a three-man unit that takes these to the front line. Um, and he said they are almost or probably more effective than HIMARS and other kind of Western systems that um, Ukraine have been handed because they, they can go where kind of these larger rocket launches can't go. And they're, they're slightly more stealthy. You can see a HIMARS system coming from a mile off because if you're a Russian with binoculars. But what these things are, they're, they're just a lot more stealthier. So he, he, he actually told me that he has fired one of these grad kind of systems attached to the back of a pickup truck while the Russian, while his Russian enemies is just two kilometers away. So that's really close. It's less than, less than just over a mile basically away. So these are really kind of mobile machines. It was fascinating to see kind of how ingenious um, Ukrainian engineers, more used to kind of producing tools for the, the pharmaceutical industry, had actually developed uh, processes to kind of make weapons and basically help on the front line. And I thought that was that was really uh, fascinating. And I would highly recommend that you kind of have a look on our website to see what is what um and then what else have we what else have i done while, while i've been here um so since i last appeared on the podcast i sat down with vitaly klitschko the mayor of kiev and former heavyweight boxing champion as mentioned earlier um and we we spoke about the need basically that while like weapons are great deliveries and the ukrainians will be forever thankful for those weapons um there's actually a need for kind of blankets and generators uh, to be sent. More kind of humanitarian help to also be sent to Ukraine. So basically, the authorities can protect their civilian populations against what he said was Russia trying to use winter to call uh, to basically commit genocide. He 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 was of the opinion, as many Ukrainians are, that Russian forces are are deliberately now they're not having luck and not having it all their own way in in Herston, in Kharkiv, and in other other regions of Ukraine where fighting going on the front line. They're now trying to make people's lives a misery and basically cause some sort of humanitarian crisis as the winter goes on. And it's just today you can we've actually I believe like in in the UK we've had sort of this Indian kind of summer where it's actually in the end of October we've been able to walk around in kind of just jumpers and no need for coats. But today is noticeably close uh, colder and I think. As we move on towards the end of kind of middle of November, we're gonna we're gonna start to see kind of this humanitarian uh, story really develop of people struggling uh, throughout the winter because they've not got heating systems, they've not got uh, kind of electrical systems that can keep them warm as Ukraine's bitter winter comes in. And then another really interesting piece uh, that that I put together when I was. So I was in I was in Kiev when I kind of brought it together, but it, it went online as I moved down to uh, Privy Re, and it was uh, I managed to get my hands on sort of a confidential report that had been drawn up by the Ukrainian authorities on basically these Ukrainian experts and kind of tech wizards um, have been researching what is inside the Iranian drones that have been downed over Ukraine, and basically what they've led 
to is that Iran, who is producing these drones, even though it is denying the facts for Russia, um, is basically circumnavigating Western sanctions by stuffing its drones with American technology, which is available on the internet. And so the report kind of goes along the lines that the Shahid or Shahid 136 Kamikaze drone, as we know it, has got kind of parts of its targeting system are from, like, similar to what you'd find in the DJI drones, which kind of you can buy in the shops in the UK. There's the commercial drones that every um, kind of drone enthusiast in the UK or Western countries have. GPS systems were coming from US tech firms. Um, the engine um, was from a, you could buy it on a Chinese e-commerce website, AliExpress. Um, parts of the fuel pump had come from a Polish firm. So what, what they were finding out is basically Iranian engineers were, were stuffing these drones that are being kind of raining, raining down terror on Ukrainians from after being used by the Russians are not actually full of Iranian kit. They're actually full of Western kit. And these Iranian engineers are basically whatever kind of everyday commercial technologies they can get their hands on. That's how they've designed these drones. Um, and then there was another drone that's in use, and so excuse my pronunciation of it, but a, a, Moha, a Moha 6, which is a reconnaissance and strike drone, also made by the Iranians, used by the Russians. And that had hardware produced by Japan, Sony, Panasonic, and Fujitsu inside inside of them, as well as kind of lesser-known firms in the US, Canada, the Netherlands. And it was actually even a solitary chip that had come from and been produced by a Ukrainian firm that was inside uh, these drones we don't know when the drones were made but it, what we do know is actually iran has been iran has been kind of canvassing the western market looking for parts commercially available parts that it can use to create military weapons um and that's a worrying thing and i think what from my kind of conversations with the ukrainian officials they've really been keen to highlight this with kind of the g7 countries with the eu with the uk the us uh, japan basically asking them to cut down on on technology being that iran is allowed to get hold of because they know because they've ripped these machines apart after they've been blown out the sky examined them and realized actually it's not iranian kit it's western kit that iranian engineers are putting together and they that is one way that ukrainian the ukrainian government thinks will help them combat the issue of drones as if basically western companies whether they know about it or not um are selling items to iran for this uh, but i'll stop there Thanks, Joe. Yeah, just one one question from me. That was incredibly comprehensive, so I don't have too many. You mentioned um, interviewing and meeting Vitaly Klitschko, the mayor of Kiev. I just wanted to ask what your impressions of of him at this point in the war were. uh, Dom and I met him, interviewed him uh, back in July, and I think we were struck by his sort of assuredness. Um, He looked very good. He sort of exuded authority. what, What were your impressions? Uh, so, yeah, Dom and I interviewed him in June at the NATO summit in Madrid as well. So, um, And I, unfortunately, I didn't. I'm, I'm, I'm a keen boxing enthusiast. So him, uh, Vitaly, and his brother Vladimir was two of the boxers that I kind of grew up watching. So it was, a, it was almost a bit of a fanboy moment when you meet him. And he actually invited us up into his office. We were meant to meet him out in the street while he was taking delivery of uh, two uh, ambulances and a fire engine donated by a kind of a German aid a foundation um but he, he invited us up to his office he gave he was he was like oh come on let's have coffee and let's have a proper chat so it was really, it was really nice um but yeah you're right he, he does kind of have this aura about him which i i 
guess, come from his days as a boxer, where he had to be a media personality. He's used to kind of standing in front of the, the camera and reeling off these kind of lines about kind of his enemy in the other side of the ring, in the other corner. Um, but his, his lines don't change. What, what he is really kind of keen to push and keen to do is highlight to the West that this is what Russia's doing and this is what we need help with. And um, we actually, what was quite intriguing, I spoke about how the war comes to an end with him. And he was quite resolute in the answer. And I was like, what, are, what conditions? He's not a member of the government. He's, he's not even a member of Zelensky's party. But so, And I said, what do you think Ukraine and the Ukrainian government should do in terms of finding peace? And he was like, we should not accept peace until every Russian soldier has left the country. Um, Vladimir Putin and anyone involved in has faced trial and reparations have been paid. And I, was, and I said, does that include Crimea? Because a lot of kind of Western leaders would probably exclude Crimea and they would look at returning Ukraine to the February 23rd lines. So kind of rolling it back to just before the full-blown invasion. He was like, no, we're going to get everyone out and that includes Crimea because Crimea is Ukrainian. And then I... I, I what I, what I like about him, he, he, he's very emotive. He, so when I, when I said, how much is enough in terms of Western aid? And he leaned forward and he put his fists on the table and I'm, I'm trying to bang my, my desk in front of me like he did. Uh, and he's got, as you can imagine, he's, a, he's six foot seven. He's, he's a former world heavyweight champion boxer. So he's, his hands are massive. And he just said, enough is enough when the war is over. And so he is basically saying that Ukraine is going to fight tooth and nail for every inch of its territory back, and he is fully behind that. But what's what's great to great to see about him? Yes, he's a celebrity. Yes, he probably because he's a celebrity politician. Not everyone in Kiev is a huge fan because uh, they 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 see it as him trying to maybe push his brand at times. But actually, they they're coming over. They they're, they're appreciating what he's done. He, him and his brother turn out and they go and if there's ever been kind of drone strikes missile strikes in the in the center of Kiev, they'll go and visit it they'll be some of the first people there kind of helping delivering aid and making making sure there's an arm around kind of anyone that's lost a, ho- a home or anything like that so what you see is a really committed chap who is fighting for what he believes is right and you cannot kind of doubt his devotion to the ukrainian victory Thank you very much for that, Joe. Um, Hamish de Breton-Gordon, can I bring you in here? Um, Joe talked about the missile strikes and um, something obviously we've talked about in the past, um, Putin's unconventional warfare. That's attacking the grids, the key energy infrastructure and other infrastructure. You've had some thoughts on this. Um, would you like to share them? Um, David and everybody, good afternoon. Joe, a really, really good explanation there. I think absolutely what, what, one of the key things here on the unconventional war as uh, as I and others are calling it. Um, it's interesting that General Spikin, who uh, some know as General Armageddon, who I think developed a lot of his thoughts about this in Syria over the last four or five years, he's now been in command for about four weeks now. And we are really seeing the sort of zenith of this attack. I'm not sure, it, it's not just on infrastructure, it's really attack on civilians. Um, and the, the idea being is that... Um, 
the uh, the Russian military have been unable to get anywhere against the Ukrainian military, and in fact are now going backwards in some places quite rapidly. But if you take down the civilian population as well, if you try and break their will, then the idea is that the uh, they will persuade their government to sue for some sort of um, some some sort of ceasefire. Now that clearly is not happening, and in fact, you know, you see people getting stronger. Uh, by this, um, you know, it just shows that, there, there, you know, when you're unencumbered by morals or scruples, you can do virtually anything. And what has been doing is this systematic hitting primarily of the um, the, the power infrastructure and uh, lights going out and what the knock on effect to that, of course, as, as we've heard, you know, that water is ha has also been affected. Um, really, it's it's how we develop from this. Ukrainians are doing tremendously well, allegedly sort of knocking out about 90 percent of these uh, missiles that are th these precision guided missiles, cruise missiles that, that are at the front of this. And and also the Ukrainian kamikaze um, drones that we're hearing so much about. So they are actually doing a heck of a job here. But but with the winter coming on and everything else. I'm sure Putin wants to, you know, turn the heating off and freeze everybody as well. Um, it seems that the, um, you know, the civil defence and emer state emergency services are really well organised. And certainly what I've seen of them, um, you know, they, they are doing a great job of, of rebuilding and getting things back to normal. And uh, and that is that is something to be lauded. I think one of my additional uh, concerns. And just going back to one of Joe's points about the hospitals, you know, attacking hospitals and schools um, is exactly what um, Assad and the Russians uh, did in Syria, and with great effect. And I think one of the concerns of where does conventional warfare go from here? Uh, we've discussed on the pod a lot recently about the sort of dirty bombs and the nuclear side. Um, and Bob Seely and I, Bob is the MP for the Isle of Wight and a great thinker on Russia, we are currently just finishing off a, a sort of, uh, I, I'd say, academic with, with a with a sort of a small a paper on this on where we think we're going. I think when we look at conventional warfare and the electric electricity grid, we mustn't forget that you know when the war started, sixty percent of Ukraine's power was coming from nuclear, and um, this is an area that I am quite, I am really concerned about. Um, I know that the IE, the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency have got people on the ground, um, but we were only hearing yesterday, I think, the Russians were saying that uh, the Ukrainian military had blown up a, a landmine at Zaporizhia, the, this massive power station that we discussed, which again seems ridiculous to me. The Russians uh, control Zaporizhia. The only people who are going to blow up a landmine in a reactor there um, is going to be them. So I think, you know, that that is an area of, of huge concern um, moving forward. And uh, and we need to uh, and I hope that, uh, that that the international community will make it absolutely clear. And uh, I know that Rishi Sunak, the prime minister, did last night and uh, and also um, James Cleverly, the foreign secretary, reiterated that any any well, they did say any nuclear uh, weapons would um, would elicit an overwhelming response. 
I, I really put Zaporizhia in there as well. To me, we heard a couple of weeks ago out the Russians, or, or even last week, uh, discussing the West about to um, use the dirty bomb in Ukraine. Well, I, I actually think that actually Zaporizhia might well be the, the Russian dirty bomb, uh, and that would have a huge impact there. Um, what one is trying to do is actually sort of uh, give give some uh, advice to civilians in Ukraine. At the very beginning of the war, we discussed, we, uh, myself and some others, produced an app um, so people could survive chemical and biological attacks at the beginning of the war. The Russians were threatening false flag there. And um, just updating the app now, which is on Telegram, uh, to um, really give, tell people how to prepare, make sure they're well prepared, and what to do if there is a nuclear accident or a deliberate uh, use of radiation or a dirty bomb. And uh, hopefully that, and I'll try and make sure that we get that across as wider platforms as possible so that the people of Ukraine can can uh, have an idea of what to do. And, and one hopes that, um, you know, it's terrible talking about these sort of threats, but, you know, if the Russians do have any any morals at the depths of their soul, if they know that actually... Um, blowing up somewhere like Zaporizhia will not have the impact that they hope. Hopefully they won't do that. So I think um, we are seeing the unconventional warfare develop. It's going to become more of an issue uh, as as the weather turns. Um, but I think it is, is absolutely um, uh, uh, tightening the resolve of, of the Ukrainian people um, to resist. And hopefully it is tightening the resolve of the international community, the Europeans, ourselves and the Americans to keep providing um, uh, Ukraine with all the wherewithal so that they can prevail in this conflict and uh, and also that we can protect civilians as much as possible. Okay. Thanks, Amos. Just one question to you before we go to Rosina in Washington. Um, you mentioned early on uh, in your piece just then about how this unconventional warfare, the strategy from the Russian uh, military for the last few weeks follows very closely the playbook from Syria, which you saw yourself. Can I just ask you to ex- explain to our listeners what actually happened in Syria and, and how did it uh, turn the war there in, in Assad and Russia's favour? In, in I guess what I'm getting at is, if that's the playbook, how, how did it work in Syria? Why did it work? And, and how does that relate to, to, to our understanding of Ukraine at the moment? Well, that 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 is um, that that is the nub of the issue here. And these, I would say, these are not directly similar conflicts. Um, they are what, what is similar is that the civilians are at the heart of it. The the fighting is going on with the civilians there. You know, usually one tries to you know get the civilians out of the way, protect them, you know, get them out of the fight. But in both Syria and Ukraine. Um, the civilians are actually absolutely heart of the fight, um, and in S- Syria was a, a, a civil war rather than a you know a war between states. And uh, what was happening is that um, the civilian population uh, on, on the one side you had had the sort of people who are rising up in in Syria, and you had a number of different rebel groups, some pretty unsavoury, who were fighting amongst them, um, and and then you had the Assad regime. Who were trying to su- suppress the conflict, and in many cases, um, civilians were um, in certain areas. And uh, Aleppo, I think, is, is the best example, where about half a million c- civilians were surrounded by um, uh, 
by the Syrian regime forces and Russian forces, and they fought, the, the Syrians fought conventionally for, you know, four years to try and um, get the civilians to really give up uh, the struggle and, and the fighters who were with them to give up the fight. Uh, and what, what we saw there is that Aleppo was raised to the ground. You know, they, they, they put so much conventional explosives um, into uh, Aleppo and basically it was rubble and people hid amongst the rubble and survived. Um, the the uh, doctors under fire, uh, we supported a bunch of hospitals uh, in Aleppo and in Idlib. And um, I, I think we lost over a thousand people over that sort of four or five years in Aleppo, thousand uh, doctors and medics. Um, you know, super cynical. Uh, it, you know, the rules of war in the Geneva Convention protects hospitals, you know, mosques, churches, synagogues, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And even in a conflict like Syria, um, one would give the United Nations the exact location of one's hospitals and and churches, etc. And those would then be should be protected with a sort of imaginary circle around them. But uh, what we found in Syria is literally the day after this information had been given to the UN, who then shared it with the Russians and the Syrians so that they wouldn't attack them. Uh, that's exactly what they did. They attacked them. And um, we, we've seen exactly the same in Syria. What, what is of cons- real concern for me at the moment, particularly with the, all the talk of Russian false flag, chemical, biological and nuclear attack. Of course, the thing that made the difference in Syria were, were chemical weapons. Um, the four-year siege of Aleppo was broken by 17 days of chlorine barrel bombs, um, pushed out of helicopters. Uh, you had hundreds of thousands of people hiding underground. Um, a lot of them were killed underground or they were forced above ground where they were um, killed or captured. And that, that, that to me, is, is the playbook. Now, we, we haven't seen chemical weapons used, but we've seen everything else, attacks on hospitals, attacks on schools, the use of... Uh, Things like white phosphorus, which uh, to set fire to buildings, which we saw, you know, quite a lot in the early days in Ukraine. We haven't seen it now, but again, uh, you wind forward to, to to the suburbs of Damascus. Assad used chemical weapons in a place called Khan Shakun, the nerve agent Sarin, in 2017, and again in a place called Douma, um, chlorine barrel bombs, and they broke the sieges. So. You know, I, I sort of go back to my early points. If you have no morals or scruples and you're unconstrained by what you do, you know, all these sort of weapons are, are, are at your fingertips. And I think that's why, you know, particularly on the on the sort of nuclear dirty bomb side, you know, we need to be very much on the balls of our feet, which is why, um, you know, the little things that, that, that those of us who, who were in Syria found worked, like simple training courses for civilians to be able to react have an impact. So they are different conflicts. One absolutely accepts that. But unfortunately, some of the protagonists are the same. And it seems what they found successful in Syria, they're trying to replicate uh, in Ukraine. However, against a very different foe and one that is supported by, by the might of NATO. So they should not prevail. Well, thank you very much uh, for that rundown, Hamish. We'll come back to you uh, later to talk about your thoughts around uh, the Nord Stream attacks and the uh, Ukrainian attack on Sevastopol. Um, Rosina Sabor, can I come to you? Rosina is our Washington editor coming in live, talking to us live from Washington. Um, 
the midterms are in exactly a week. You've come on this podcast a few times in the past few months just to give us a sense of how American voters feel about the issue of Ukraine and how the American parties are talking about it in their campaigns in the midterms. Uh, what's the latest from you? you? You've been out in Georgia and Nevada speaking to people. What are they telling you? Hi, David. Hi, everybody. Great to be with you. Yeah, it's a great time to speak to you today. Very fortuitous because, as you say, it um, is just one week before Election Day in the U.S., Um, I'm back in Washington at the moment, but I've been on the road a fair bit during the election campaign. So lots to share. Um, But just briefly to give um, listeners an oversight to begin with, the midterms will determine not just the balance of power in the US Congress for the next two years, but also Joe Biden's mandate to govern for the second half of his term. So they're of huge significance, not just for domestic policy, but also because they have you know, incredibly wide reaching implications for US foreign policy. I can get on to the foreign policy implications in a, in a while you mentioned, you know, how it will affect support for Ukraine. But if you'll humour me, I would like to use the opportunity to give you a brief rundown of the midterm campaign and the, and the current state of play, because it is really interesting. And, and it's not something we often get to to talk about in quite so much detail on, on the podcast. Um, and given that it is a week away, it seems like a good opportunity. So um, we could start with the US House of Representatives. So to briefly explain um, to anyone that doesn't follow this very closely, every seat in the House of Representatives is up for re-election every two years. So all 435 seats in the House of Representatives are up. So currently, Democrats have a majority in that chamber, about roughly eight seats majority. They've, they've had a few open seats um, recently. So pollsters predict the Republicans are going to seize control of the House. Now, there's a lot of talk about a red wave. So, you know, the GOP sweeping this huge majority. Um, it's actually quite hard to forecast just how large a majority they will command, but it does seem fairly safe to predict that they will be taking control of that chamber. Now, what's much harder to predict is what's going to happen in the Senate. Really, really interesting to watch this because this will be decided by just a handful of critical states. So to break it down, currently the Democrats control the Senate by the tightest of margins. So this 100-seat chamber is split 50-50, but the vice president, Kamala Harris, has the casting vote, the deciding vote. So, you know, it it couldn't be tighter. Um, Senators hold six-year terms and roughly a third of them are up for re-election this year. Now, a lot of those are fairly safe seats. So this essentially means that the race will be decided by a clutch of states. Now, they are two states currently held by Republicans, Pennsylvania and Ohio, and three states held by Democrats, so Arizona, Nevada and Georgia. So I've traveled to the last of those two in recent weeks. So I was in Las Vegas last weekend speaking to casino workers who will play a huge role in the race in Nevada and as a consequence in the Senate as a whole. Now, the issue on everyone's lips there is the cost of living crisis, the rampant inflation that Americans, just like Brits, are battling at the moment. So I was lucky enough to go out door knocking with um, one of the largest, actually the largest union in Nevada, which has a huge role. You know, the unions are, are the real power brokers in Nevada's 
politics. So, you know, out with the casino workers and, and knocking on doors, they're, they're campaigning for the Democrat senator there. But the issue on, you know, most voters' lips isn't, you know, Democrat or Republican. It's actually, you know, how am I going to afford to fill my car up? You know, that Nevada is the state with some of the highest gas prices in the nation. So those are the issues that are playing out there. The other big nationwide issue dominating, dominating this election is abortion rights. And that's because, as many listeners will know, the US Supreme Court ruled to strike down the law that had granted women a constitutional right to an abortion for the last nearly 50 years. That provoked a huge backlash among a lot of voters. Polls show that the majority of Americans do actually support some level of abortion access. And most of them actually supported the status quo, which was, you know, 1973 ruling Roe v. Wade. Um, but since the Supreme Court decision, dozens of states have moved to enforce new restrictions and some have actually enacted pretty restrictive bans. So that was the big issue in the minds of many Democrat voters I spoke to in Nevada, but also in Georgia, where I was a couple of weeks ago. Um, where there was the only debate happening between the two leading candidates in that race and another very interesting race. So we have a rare instance of um, two African-American candidates facing off against each other. So the incumbent is um, Democrat Senator Raphael Warnock. He's a longtime pastor. He's actually the pastor at um, Martin Luther King's former church, a, a you know, storied church in Atlanta, Georgia. Very long history and legacy with in, in terms of the civil rights movement. And he's facing off against Herschel Walker, which is a name that might be familiar to some of you. He's um, a quite a famous former American football player. Uh, kind of enjoys legendary status in Georgia because he played college football for the University of Georgia. And for anyone who doesn't know, in the South, college football is, um, is almost a religion in itself. So he's kind of got a cult following there and he's been handpicked by Donald Trump as the Republican candidate to run in that race. Um, you know, has the backing of, of Donald Trump and a, a large part of the, the Republican Party, but is uh, a candidate with a very checkered past. There's been various uh, claims of domestic abuse by his former wife. There have also, in recent weeks, been a number of scandals engulfing him by former girlfriend, two former girlfriends who have claimed that he paid for them to have an abortion. Now, Walker is um, staunchly pro-life. He's likened abortion to murder. Um, so th that issue, again, very um, dominant in the race in Georgia. And we can talk about the other states, um, if you like, if we've got time, uh, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Ohio, all very interesting races. But the issues that came to mind in Georgia and Nevada when I was there in the, in the last couple of weeks, really, you know, abortion and the cost of living and how that's going to affect, you know, not, not just, the, you know, the balance of power in, in the US Senate, but, you know, how, how Joe Biden will then govern for the final part of his term. Well, thank you, Rosina. That was a comprehensive and I think a much needed overview of the issues uh, Americans are thinking of a week before the polls, uh, a week before the midterms. So 
Can we push this slightly? How does the issue of Ukraine and American support for Ukraine uh, fit into this? Was it mentioned on the do- on the doorstep at all? What, what issues is it connected to in voters' minds? And I guess the secondary question to that is, how might that support, how might the US's diplomatic stance towards the war change depending on the results? Yeah, so it's, it's a very interesting question. Um, the way it plays out isn't usually as direct as you know, while well, I'm pro-Ukraine or I'm, I'm against supporting Ukraine. But like I said, the cost of living is a huge issue. Um, you know, when you speak to, to voters, they can rattle off the, the gas price of the day. They can, you know, they'll tell you exactly how much the cost of bread, of cauliflower, of, you know, various groceries has increased in the last few months. You know, they're very, very aware of how this is impacting them. Now, where that comes to play with Ukraine is, you know, we talked about the fact that the Republicans are very likely to take control of the House of Representatives. The Republican who's likely to be the, the, you know, the party leader in that chamber, he's likely to be the next Speaker of the House of Representatives, is Kevin McCarthy. Now, he um, has a a kind of a mixed record, um, but has allied himself quite closely with Donald Trump and has actually faced some dissent among his ranks from, you know, more right-wing, more Trump loyalist members. And he's actually expecting to get a larger number of those, of that flank of the party um, in Congress in after this election. So there is pressure from the right-wing of the Republican Party to actually be more fiscally restrained, to spend less money. We've seen these massive military assistance packages signed off by Congress. Um, And what Kevin McCarthy has said recently is, you know, we're not going to write a blank check for Ukraine. Um, kind of signaling that that the, the kind of the window is closing on on these huge military packages. Now that has to be read in the context that Kevin McCarthy has a, a leadership election coming up in which he will be vying to be the next Speaker of the House of Representatives. Um, and so part of that will be you know aimed at his base and appeasing the right wing of his party. We've seen the Republican leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell actually be very forceful in his support for Ukraine and for these, you know, big spending packages. So it, it's a bit of a mixed picture and we really do have to wait and see just how large the Republican majority is in the House of Representatives. But there is no doubt that, you know, the window is closing on those big packages. And, and I think it's unlikely we'll see these same sprawling financial packages signed off in the way that we have over the summer, say. Um, actually, one other thing to mention is, you know, when when you speak to Republicans, I actually had lunch with a former Trump official the other day, and they're actually, you know, despite the, the kind of rhetoric from, from what we sometimes call the MAGA wing of the party, of the Republican Party, which is, you know, quite concerned about huge spending at a time when the American economy is suffering and and the American public is, you know, struggling with the price of everyday living. You you know, despite all of that, 
you know, what this one Trump official said to me is actually, you know, when it comes down to it, we will we will back Ukraine. We will continue to support this effort because the cost of not doing so is just too high. And despite, you know, the, the rhetoric that is maybe a little ramped up around the election, you know, when it comes to January and we have a new Congress in place, we will continue to see solid support for Ukraine. Thank you very much, Rosina. Just one question from me, then I believe Joe's question as well. And after that, don't worry, Hamish, we'll get to your thoughts on uh, Sevastopol and um, and Nord Stream. But just very quickly, Rosina, a story has come out yesterday that we've reported on about a, um, well, basically Joe Biden, we think in June, lost his temper with uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, um, when they were talking about assistance to Ukraine. Can you just talk us through um, this story? I, mean, we, I know it was back in June, but it does throw a new light on the relationship between the American president and uh, the Ukrainian president. Yeah, it, yeah, very interesting. So the the report, I think it's by NBC News, um, which is that Biden reportedly lost his temper and raised his voice on the phone with Zelensky um, in in June, as you say, after another one of these huge military assistance packages that we've just been talking about. I think that one in particular was about a billion dollars. Um, and, you know, Biden is supposed to have, you know, reminded Zelensky that actually the American people are doing a huge amount. Um, and, you know, the US has spent considerably more than than any other Western ally in terms of supporting Ukraine. So, uh, you know, a valid point to be made there and, and, and you know, just kind of reminding Zelensky of, of what this is costing the US and, to, to, you know, to remember that, you know, that there is some level of dissent among American lawmakers. Um, now, why was he so frustrated? Well, we, we know that Biden has a bit of a temper. <laughs> We've, you know, we've seen him respond quite irritably on a number of occasions. Um, that's, you know, the type of person he is. It's quite easy to envisage how that might have gone down with Zelensky, even if we are only hearing about it secondhand. Um, but the reason he would have been angry, you know, is this awareness that public support isn't unlimited, that, you know, the American public is suffering and you know actually Biden's suffering as a result we've seen his um, approval ratings you know hovering around the high 30s kind of low 40s and actually you know the point was made the other day that when petrol prices went down Biden's approval ratings went up but now that petrol prices have gone back up again um, Biden's approval ratings have declined slightly. So that his approval ratings are, do seem to be very closely linked to this cost of living crisis that Americans are experiencing. So, you know, that's that's why he was so frustrated. We know that, you know, maybe this congressional support for sending billions of dollars to Ukraine is fading. But I think the other you know point to make is, as you say, this happened in June why are we hearing about it now? You know, has this been strategically leaked by the administration to, you know, make the point clear to Americans that, you know, Joe Biden isn't writing a, a blank check in the way that Kevin McCarthy, you know, had had kind of um, talked about in recent weeks. So it's very interesting, but it does really reflect the mood that we've just been talking about and the, and the predicament that that Joe Biden and the Democrats face in terms of wanting to continue this huge support, but 
not alienating Republicans and not alienating the American people. Well, thank you very much, Rosina. Um, Just very quickly, uh, we do actually have at The Telegraph a new podcast out about the midterms. It's called The Red Wave. It's presented by our colleague Stephen Edgington. There are two episodes out already. So if you do want to learn more and hear more about what's happening in America, do go to uh, The Red Wave on any podcast app or on The Telegraph website. So uh, thank you for that, Rosina. Joe, I know you have a question. Thank you. Um, Hi, Rosina. I'll try and keep it short, but in the summer I was having lunch with a sort of a diplomatic kind of security source in London and they were saying that people in the UK kind of government apparatus are becoming consciously aware that the US is potentially going to become more inward looking when it comes to foreign policy and while Ukraine might not be the kind of priority or the first thing you think of because this is like in the immediate future um this is happening, but they were thinking more towards the China-Taiwan issue. So I just wanted to kind of gave your opinion on whether, like, the next generation of US politicians, whether there's been any signs in the midterms that kind of US foreign policy might take more inward-looking, maybe a Trump-esque America First policy, um, rather than that kind of this outward-looking Biden approach where he's kind of tough on China, he's tough on Russia, um, and Basically, will they be more inward looking in the future, do you think? That's that's a, a, an interesting question. Um, I suppose the answer to that um, isn't, isn't quite so straightforward, in my opinion. Um, like with many things about, um, you know, Donald Trump and, and, and his kind of platform, it's not quite as straightforward as, you know, isolationist bent, meaning, you know, kind of t- turn inwards and and not focus on on Russia and China I, I actually I think I mean this is just my personal opinion but I see a bit of a split in the way Republicans approach Russia and the way the Republicans approach China um, a large part of that I think is because if you go to you know the Midwest and the US if you go to to the Rust Belt these areas that have seen economic decline um, a loss in in manufacturing jobs, you know, many of them will tell you that they hold China responsible. They, they they see a direct link between economic decline in the Rust Belt in the US and the growth of China. So actually, a lot of Republicans who you might kind of term isolationist or you might consider um, not to be, you know, quite so eager to get involved in Russia, Ukraine actually are incredibly hawkish on China. And, um, and, and actually a lot of, a lot of GOP rhetoric in the, the MAGA kind of wing of the party um, is quite focused on China and is, is hugely critical of China. So I don't think that um, a move away from you know, America being a big global player on the world stage in future would necessarily um, mean the same for China. And I think that's, you know, one of the few instances where, you know, Joe Biden and, and, you know, the kind of moderate wing of the Democrat Party and, you know, a large part of the Republican Party are quite aligned, actually. Um, so yeah, as as with everything with Donald Trump, it's, it's not it's not quite so straightforward. <laughs> um, but you know, obviously, obviously, a lot can can change between here and now. But I suppose 
you know, one of the reasons there has been incredible bipartisan support for these actually huge, you know, when you step back and just look at the sheer figures, you know, billions of dollars, huge figures in spending. A lot of that isn't just because, you know, they they want to defeat Putin. It's also because they want to send a message to Xi Jinping and, you know, and, and you know, warn him off doing something similar in Taiwan. Now, obviously, the, you know, the reasons for that um, are, are distinct. You know, Taiwan has huge implications for, you know, U.S. manufacturing. You know, it's uh, obviously a, a, a large um, provider of, you know, semiconductors, semiconductors and, and all the rest of it. And, you know, in terms of global trade, the Taiwan Straits has, has huge implications. So, um I think I think there's a slight difference between the approach to Russia and China, but at the moment, you know, many American officials see um, being very hawkish on Russia as a way to be hawkish on China. That's quite a long-winded explanation. I hope that makes sense. Thank you, Rosina, and thank you, Joe, for the question. Um, time is starting to run short, so can I can we move back to Ukraine? Um, and, and yes, Rosina will absolutely get you on um, next week after the midterms and you can dissect for us what's, what's happened and what this might mean uh, regarding, in regarding uh, Ukraine. Um, let's go back to um, Sevastopol, the attack on the Black Sea fleet that happened on Saturday morning and uh, the Nord Stream attacks. Hamish, I know you had some thoughts about this. I mean, the, the Russians have, have floated the idea that the, that the British Royal Navy might have been involved. Uh, what do you say to that? Well, I, I will, we could probably do a whole pod on this, but I will try and keep it short and sharp to, to a few minutes. And uh, I, I was and have always been a specialist um, rather than special. Uh, but I think these are two distinctly different events. And I'm sure those people who have been watching SAS Rogue Heroes on, on the BBC will know why David Sterling and Blair Paddy Main set up the UK Special Forces, which is all about getting behind enemy nines, attacking key areas at the back, uh, as they call it, to cut the snake in half so that the, the front bit withers away. And, and with that, that in mind, if we look at the Nord Stream attack, first of all, and, and the Russians have been very demonstrative that this is a UK operation and uh, insinuating its UK special forces. But it makes absolutely no sense. And I agree with the government rebuff on this. It makes no tactical advantage to have a special forces operation. First of all, it's not behind enemy lines. It's within, you know, the sort of European territory of influence. The only thing it would do if, if it was UK special forces, it would hack off, you know, the Germans and the French who hope eventually for, you know, gas to flow through that particular pipeline. The only people benefit from it is actually the Russians um, from having an impact there. And, and to put Nord Stream to bed, you know, the, 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 all NATO, most NATO countries have very effective uh, special forces. Um, and, it, you know, th- this would not be an area that UK special forces necessarily operated in. So I think we can put the Nord Stream to bed. That very clearly is, I'm sure, on the Russian sort of Spetsnaz or somebody else's um, target list. We go, go to um, Sebastopol, slightly different issue. This is well behind um, enemy lines, a well-constructed uh, operation here, which will have a strategic impact you can imagine, you know, it would appear that an awful lot of Russian soldiers and sailors have not really got the stomach for this fight. Um, and if they, they now know that the, their enemy is all around them, you know, they can be 
you know, shot in Sebastopol as easily as they can be, you know, shot in Kherson. So I think that that has a sort of strategic impact here uh, and attacking the fleet. Um, it is a classic special forces operation um, sort of envisaged by David Sterling and UK special forces are still really the gold standard, you know, around the world. You know, does it have UK special forces SAS fingerprints on it? No, I'm sure it doesn't. You know, does it have their hallmark? Yeah, absolutely. Again, go, going back to the development of, of special forces by David Sterling and the team back in the the Second World War. Um, if if you, you know, I'm talking to you from the edge of Salisbury Plain at the moment, and if you could hear above the shouting of my dogs, you'd be able to hear some firing going on in the background, which is, yeah, thousands of Ukrainian soldiers being trained um, in by British and and actually by Australian and New Zealand and European soldiers for the fight there. You know, are, are there uh, Ukrainian special forces being trained as well? Well, I don't know, and we'll never know. Um, one would hope there probably are. So I think, uh, you know, the answer to your question, I, I think the operation at the weekend in Sebastopol is a classic, you know, special forces type operation. It will have a strategic impact. Um, Nord Stream strikes me as another uh, Russian false flag really personifies you know the disinformation the Russians are trying to put forward and the only people who will gain from that um, are the Russians so that is hopefully a simple run through of those particular operations and um, and the way that special forces might operate and we know that Ukraine you know have have very effective military and no doubt very effective special forces. Thanks, Hamish. Just very quickly, I mean, I, I'm wondering how to phrase this question without sounding massively speculative. But I guess, would you be surprised if, in five, ten years' time, we discovered that uh, th- this attack was conducted by Ukrainian special forces, and there had been some uh, some training link with um, the Royal Navy with with UK special forces? If if you're saying that you know this attack has all the fingerprints, has all the sort of uh, the, the hallmarks of what the special forces might might do, would that would that surprise you? Well, I think it has all the hallmarks because I'm, you know, as I try to, you know, the, the, it is the UK special forces, it's the SAS who who developed these type of skills and really sort of led the world in it. So, so it has their hallmarks on it, and of course, you know, there, you know, over the years as we've been training the Ukrainians and a whole host of things, no doubt there have been exchanges of of, of special forces. I don't think we will ever find out if that was the case we will ever find out whether that's so i wouldn't be at all surprised that um you know it's heavily influenced by by what what capabilities we've developed um and i think it's good for the russians to understand that um you know there they can be attacked wherever and the heinous crimes that they appear to be committing one day you know they will um they will have to account for that. Uh, and just as a final thing, you know, what, one of the things I said to a lot of people in Syria is, you know, eventually these people who commit crimes will find their way to the International Criminal Court, as most of the generals who committed atrocities in Bosnia and Kosovo do. And I hope that um, General Savarkin and his like will, in due course, end up there as well. 
Well, thank you very much, Hamish, Joe and Rosina. Uh, is there anything from Joe or Rosina you think we should cover very quickly? I'm very aware we're running very short on time. Or shall I just ask quickly for your final thoughts? What uh, are you going to be looking at in the days to come? And what would you like our listeners, what do you think our listeners uh, should be thinking of? Um, yeah, thanks, David. I, I suppose, you know, the final thing I would close on is, you know, I just you know from my own experience as a British reporter here in Washington you know you do meet um, British government officials and representatives as they come through you know we're obviously speaking to you know the Biden administration and and, and people on, in, on Capitol Hill as well um, and actually the hallmark of all those conversations is just how in lockstep this Western alliance has been and the willingness to continue supporting Ukraine and you know that has transcended what are some very different political ideologies so you know we've seen joe biden you know really sticking the boot into liz trust during her brief premiership hitting out at her on her economic policies you know maybe unheard of um or at least incredibly unusual for a u.s president to do that um to a, a serving british prime minister but when it comes to ukraine they were very much on the same page and you know we've seen that continue with um rishi sunak now in downing street and i think you know, that's just been a very interesting hallmark and an interesting takeaway that I've had from from speaking to people in, you know, in both sides of the Atlantic. Um, just, you know, regardless of political ideologies, they are very committed to supporting Ukraine throughout. Thanks, Rosina. Uh, Hamish, would you like to go next? Yeah, d- j- just two very quick ones, please. Um, we talked a lot about conventional warfare and... Um, I'll be giving a, a lecture at Cambridge University on the 17th of November with John Simpson on this, and I'll, I'll put a link on my Twitter and, and, and copy it to The Telegraph as well. And I think the other, the other area that so many people are concerned about the nuclear piece here, I, I think in this country there is no, no need to be overly concerned and, and having protect and uh, survive reissued by the government is probably um, not necessary. But... You know, I am concerned um, in in Ukraine, uh, and we're doing all we can to make sure that civilians are protected uh, as best they can. And I I, I will share the link to the Telegram um, training piece uh, for surviving these sort of things as soon as it's up in the next day or so. Thank, thank you very much, uh, Hamish, for that. And do do follow Hamish on Twitter uh, if you want to see more of that. Joe Barnes, you're in Ukraine. What are your final thoughts? So my final thoughts today is keep watching the Kherson counteroffensive because we know Ukraine's forces are kind of edging closer uh, to the city of Kherson, the regional capital, the only and regional capital that Russia has managed to capture throughout the eight months of the conflict. Um, fighting has slowed down in the area. Um, they've kind of seen less casual. Ukrainians have seen less casualties, and they've kind of people I've spoken to have admitted, look, we're not pushing as hard as. We are, but what we're doing is we're regrouping and ready to kind of go again. Um, it's not going to be a quick battle for the city. It's well fortified. There could be up to 40,000 Russians there. Um, but I expect the next week or two that Ukraine will start making a push back towards Kherson. And I would urge people to sign up to our kind of dispatches newsletter where you kind of can read fun and kind of good bulletins from our foreign correspondents because I have just filed over a piece about a bottle of Russian victory vodka, which was kind of produced to celebrate the Russian capture of the Ukraine. Um, and it was bottled as kind of late as the end of August. And that was found in a abandoned, in a liberated town by Ukrainian soldiers. So I think that's, that's quite an amusing 
story that the Russians thought they were going to be celebrating with vodka, a branded Russian victory, or for the Russian victory, and now they're leaving it behind kind of in the dirt tracks when they're making haste and getting out of these liberated villages. So that's where I'll, I'll leave it there for this week or today. If you enjoyed Rosina Sabor's discussion of the American midterm elections, why not listen to The Red Wave? It's a new podcast from The Telegraph, presented by my colleague Stephen Edgington. Do go and find The Red Wave wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast by The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, do leave a review as it helps others find the show. To our listeners on YouTube, for reasons beyond our control, there's sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload, so if you do want to hear an episode as soon as possible, it's available on your podcast apps. Please search for Ukraine The Latest on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred app. Check out the Ukraine page on the Telegraph website. As ever, you can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Gemma Farrell.